Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October 23rd, 2014, and this is episode 1451 of the Survival Podcast. I have a very unique show for you today. I've done things like this in the past, but never quite exactly like this. Um, what I'm going to do today, last night I did a post on Facebook and said I want to do a Q&A question show tomorrow, rapid fire style. Anything you ask me, if I can fit it in, I will answer it on tomorrow's show. Put that post on Facebook, figured I get 40 or 50 questions that can answer most of them. Got over 165 comments as of right now, and I've cut it off there uh, as far as uh, updating the page to see what comes out. Between now and when I get finished, there's no way I can do them all, but I'll do as many as I can. I will do them quick. I will do them down and dirty. I will try to cover as much ground as I can today, and that should be fun and a little bit different and get a ton of content into a single show that will probably run about an hour and a half is where I'll probably cap today off. I'm not getting started until 1230 today with actually recording due to how backed up I am this week with everything else that's going on. Before I do that, let us take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. Look, I believe silver and gold should be part of your investment portfolio. Period. The end over infinity. Okay. I do not think that you should get rid of all your evil capitalist green money that's all going to be worthless toilet paper someday. I don't buy that. It could happen. That's one of the reasons we assure our wealth with investments in precious metals. I think that assurance policy is 5 to 10% of your net wealth. That's a reasonable assurance factor, and it allows you to diversify out of just being in paper assets into physical assets. But when you're doing that, I think you should buy the best product you can get at the best price you can get it at, and the best place I know to do that is JM Bullion. It is not just about the product itself, the physical piece of metal, but the customer service that goes along with it. These guys take care of you. They look after you. They're small enough that if there is a hiccup, I can get the president of the company, Michael, right by email immediately and get it taken care of for you. That's what I'm looking for in a sponsor. That's why you don't see Monix and Atmex and the other giant metal companies on my website. And, hey, JM usually kicks their butt on pricing as well. Check them out today, jambullion.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals, another type of gold, herbs. If my back hurts, I do not reach for Tylenol, Moltrin, or Advil, or any type of harsh, harsh uh, pharmaceutical prescription medication. I'll reach for something like turmeric, or maybe the pain formula they offer that has red valerian in it. Uh, if it's a specific spot, maybe I'll put a little bit of their heat-depeating ointment on it. And uh, that'll work really well for me. That's probably the biggest thing I deal with is an achy back from all the work that I do here on the homestead. But whenever I have a problem, maybe a little bit of congestion, maybe a sore throat, whatever, I always try to go something herbal first. The other day when I was uh, when I was having a little bit of trouble with my throat after being on the road and it was a little hard to talk to you guys, I went and made myself a cup of tea with goji leaves and regular black tea and some mint and some honey. That worked really well. I think that we should turn first to natural remedies to our ailments and then turn to modern medicine when those things fail because they can do no harm if they're used properly. If you want good advice and the best uh, herbal products available, check out westernbotanicals.com. 
They are my choice for everything herbal in the United States. If it's herbal and it's legal and it exists in the United States, you'll find it there. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Remember, Western Botanicals and Jam Bullion both have great discounts for members of our audience. Western Botanicals in particular gives away their discount membership program. It's $50 a year. You can get it for free for the first year and $25 a year thereafter if you are a member of my support brigade. So it pays for your entire membership in the MSB in full. For those that aren't familiar with the MSB, it stands for Members Support Brigade. It is my program where I offer you great discounts from companies like JM, Western Botanicals, many of our other sponsors. Right now there's over 40 companies that are giving discounts at the MSB. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. In addition to all the discounts that it offers you, basically it's your way of deciding, hey, I think TSP is worth supporting. I would pay for this content even though I don't have to. If you think at the end of an episode it's worth 20 cents, consider joining the MSB. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me before you, before you join, not after. Send that, disc, uh, that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. With that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. And before we get into the main, main topic, let us do our history segment. The year is 1451. I have three today for you. They're all hard to pick from because they're all very, very interesting. Number one, a man with vision. Number two, the Afghan Empire. Number three, Christopher Columbus is born. Jewish? Yep, maybe. Anyway, you can read about Christopher Columbus. There's going to be a lot to come about him in the future, so I'll just tell you he was born in 1451. The Afghan Empire is interesting because it's a part of the world we haven't covered a ton of information on, but I'm going to read A Man with Vision because I think there's a huge lesson in it for us today. Nicholas of Cusa is an author, cardinal, mathematician, administrator, and scientist who will one day be named the first modern thinker. He is one of the first to be called a Renaissance man, beginning that his learning, meaning that his learning is varied and deep. He has yet another skill. He grinds his own lenses. The first eyeglasses were invented back in 1286, but were designed for reading things up close. Nicholas has invented a concave lens that will allow people with myopic vision to see things that are far away. Myopia is the condition where only, one can only see things nearby, thus it is often called nearsightedness. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Cardinal Nicholas of Cusa was such a versatile man. I did a quick search and came up with his quote about the universe and other worlds. Quote, rather than think that so many stars and parts of the heavens are uninhabited and that this earth of ours is alone peopled and that with beings perhaps of an inferior type, we will suppose that every region, in every region there are inhabitants differing in nature by rank and all owning their origin to God, who is the center and circumference of the stellar regions. He believed the earth was not the center of the universe and that the earth was like any other heavenly body. If only Columbus had known of such views, he might have published his work sooner and thus dragged science into the modern era. But Copernicus won't be born until 1473. By the time he grows up, it will be a different world. So we often think of the church as being completely oppressive to any idea like this because of things that happened later with Copernicus and Galileo and churches putting people in prison over it and stuff like that but you know we got to think there's a, a whole huge timeline here 
And at least at this time, it was acceptable for a cardinal to speak this way. Now, my take by Jack Spirico is a little bit different. I'd like to talk to you briefly today about being a Renaissance man or a Renaissance woman. See, I think that a big problem with our modern education system is the focus on specialization. I think that there's a place for specialization. Now, there's an old quote that says specializations for insects, and that is one place. But I do think there's a place for certain people with a certain mindset to specialize in, let's say, developing a cure for cancer. I also think there's a place for people to specialize in things like designing parts for spacecraft to take man to Mars someday and all types of other things to explore those strange new worlds, in the words of the great Star Trek. So there are certain parts of life where it is good that someone become a specialist because the developments in them are very, very complex. But folks, that's probably not you. And even for those people, I think that they would do better in their specialties if they had more generalist knowledge. I believe that the most fulfilled and developed people in the world today can read and appreciate a poem. They can also speak at least one language beyond their own to some level of proficiency. That is only by doing that you truly begin to understand your own language. And those of you that think it's evil that people might learn Spanish because of the whole illegal alien debate, pull your head out of your ass and don't let the politics of others influence your own. And there's about a hundred languages out there you could choose from other than Spanish, though Spanish is interesting because you might actually find some people to speak to in, in it nearby. Latin would be another interesting language, when time considered the language of the educated. Um, I think that a person who can plant a tree and make it grow and also take a piece of metal and turn it into a knife, knows different fighting styles from around the world and appreciates them more for their arts than the harm that they can do to others, that knows the healing power of herbal medicine, that can write their own poetry, that can tell their own stories, that understands how patterns are repetitive and sees them in all things, that takes time for quiet reflection, They can make a bottle of beer, brew an herbal tea, and maybe even distill some moonshine. I think the person with this varied interest and varied skill set is not really unique. I think it is the average person. It's just been marketed and bred out of us. The average person, I believe, has a massive varied interest profile. Everything from writing, composing music, and poetry to understanding the poetry of code on a computer. And that doesn't mean that one need do all of these things. But it does mean that one would probably be far more fulfilled if they would do many of these things, specifically the ones they find the most interesting. And I think the biggest difference between those that were the original Renaissance men and the men of today, even with many skills, is time for quiet reflection and a connection to natural things. I think if we can restore a broad and varied knowledge and skill base along with that connection, we can do a lot, an awful lot, to improve society today. And more importantly, to improve the happiness of the individuals that are wise enough to experience them. My take by Jack Spirico. Hopefully it's a good little probe or a little prodding for you this week 
start developing more of your own Renaissance-like lifestyle. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. I am going to go rapid fire. Uh, if I skip your question or say I can't answer that right now, do not be offended. It just means, well, I'm one guy and I'm limited to how much I can do. So starting out, Ina says, for someone on a budget, that what would be the very most important uh, plants, trees, or shrubs to plant? I'm going to tell you this is what I would do. I would plant the things that are most productive and most likely to survive in my climate, whatever that might be. Since I don't know your climate, I can't tell you what those are, but you should focus on survivability and productivity, and out of that list, pick the things that you would most like to eat. Because you don't have time to be jacking around with all kinds of exotic things you're trying to put on life support to get to survive. And I would also say start focusing on what can you grow from seed. There's a lot of trees, bushes, shrubs, vines. You can find a lot of seed at places like Sheffield Seeds. That takes the cost way, way down. You can buy an ounce of apple seed for a few dollars and plant 200 apple trees. I'm just saying. Uh, next one, some Judith. Judith says, tip instead of a question, you can get tons of native trees, seedlings from state-run nurseries. The Kentucky State Nursery sells pawpaw seedlings, 10 for $6, 100 for $36. They also have pecan, black walnut, wild persimmon, wild plum, hazelnut, and mulberry. This is true, Judith, and it's a good tip. I, however, I want to warn you that most of the varieties being sold by state nurseries and programs like this are native trees. They're not improved varieties. They are great to grow up rootstock and overgraft on, and some of the varieties produce very valid, usable products, but they are generally more designed for things like preventing pasture erosion and for supporting wildlife, not so much for growing uh, the type of thing you would, let's say, in an orchard-style environment. So you just need to make sure you're, you understand what you're buying, and also understand when you see things like this, a lot of times these trees... You order 100 trees, and the shipping's pretty low, and you wonder how it's going to be, and they come in a box smaller than a shoebox because they're little tiny seedlings, and they don't have a really high survivability rate. I would plant two to three in each spot that you want one. Are you familiar with, this is from Matt, are you familiar with people building underground water aquifers? I heard something about it a couple of years ago, not sure if it was from you or Paul Wheaton or where. Basically dig a pond, line it with clay to seal it. Fill it with coarse rock to create void space for the water, then cap that with soil and sod. I remember hearing this, uh, that this is something that had been done historically in Iran, our India region, but I've not been able to find any reference to it. I like the concept because you could create a large water storage structure that is out of sight and out of mind from the Department of Making You Sad. While I like it and I think it's interesting, I don't know that it's the most practical. It must have come from Paul Wheaton because it did not come from me, but it's an interesting idea. Next one comes from Randy. What small animal for homesteading returns the most edible meat for the least amount of feed and medications? Chickens, rabbits, pigs, turkey, etc. Also for consideration on the same question, what ones are most easily bred and maintained as a meat crop? Um, I'll tell you, it really depends. For pure meat production, it's very, very difficult to beat rabbits. Uh, if you're talking about an animal that you regularly take care of, uh, and regularly deal with and regularly feed and, and you want pure production. Like how much do I put in versus how much comes out? How regular is the production? What's the total volume of the production? How much space does it take? Etc. Rabbits pretty much beat everything. Um, pigs actually have a very good return. Especially the right breeds that are fast growing pigs that you're harvesting at about nine months of age. Um, and they, they, they reproduce very, very well. It, it's it's easier to breed pigs than it is dogs. 
uh, and they they drop a lot of little piglets per per, per session. Um, when it comes to feral hogs, you know we look at them down here in Texas, and we say there's pretty much only four things they do: they eat, they make more pigs, uh, and they fight, and they drink water. That's it. I mean, that's pretty much a pig's whole life. Well, they just sleep. That's the four. They eat, they sleep, they procreate, and they fight. And and that's the life of the wild pig. So um, pigs have a pretty good ROI on that, but they take space. And they need to be moved around if they're going to be pastured. If they're going to be confined, then you have a lot of work to do to keep that confinement sanitary enough for your pigs. By the way, when they talk about a pig in, uh, in shit... It's it's not really an accurate thing. A pig will not crap where it lays. It's actually very a very clean animal, uh, but it makes a big stinky mess that has to be dealt with unless you have them out on pasture where it's harnessed. Um, I would say, though, if you wanted a meat crop that you wanted to do as little as possible with, if you have a pretty good pond and the right land for it, there's nothing that would beat ducks. They'll raise their own ducks. They'll produce eggs for you. They are a quick-growing animal. Geese are great, but they don't have the reproductivity of the ducks. So geese are going to lay for about a 60-day period. Your young geese, their first time through, they're not even going to lay fertile eggs mostly uh, for the first dozen eggs. They're not even going to be fertile. Uh, I don't know why that is, but it's, my experience has been that, and I think it's why a lot of people have poor results when they try incubating geese eggs. Uh, they get their geese in their first year of hens. They, they decide, oh, I'm going to raise a dozen. They put them all in there. They're getting four or five from each goose, and they get none of them to hatch. But I've just noticed that they're, they're not even fertile in that first laying cycle. They kind of get later in the cycle. So um, you're only, and they, then you're only going to get geese at one time a year. Where ducks, if you're willing to do some of your own incubating, they, they'll lay throughout a huge swath of the year, or you can just let them raise their own. So I would say that is probably the best bang for the buck if I don't want to do anything if I have the right environment for it. Next question uh, comes from Lance. Lance says, are quail eggs worth the effort? In my opinion, yes. Absolutely they're worth the effort. Uh, for the the small footprint, how quiet they are, how easy it is, definitely. Uh, about three quail eggs generally equal an average-sized chicken egg. Uh, so it's really, uh, to me, they're a great-tasting egg. And they're also, to me, a cash crop if they're properly processed. I've had, for instance, pickled quail's eggs with uh, with jalapenos, pickled jalapeno quail's eggs. They're awesome. And I just can't see a chicken egg being that marketable that way. Plus, you'd have to boil it. Then you'd have to peel it. You can pickle quail's eggs, and since the shells are thin, it actually kind of dissolves in the vinegar. So I think they're more than, uh, than worth it. Ryan says... Actually sent this in. Can you explain key line design? Actually sent this in an email this week. Can you explain key line design? Oh boy, uh, not fully. Um, there's a book by P.A. Yeomans called Water for Every Farm. And Mark Shepard says he's probably one of four people that's actually read the whole book cover to cover and then applied it in the United States. So that tells you something about how complex it is. But the basics of key line design is we take and we either plow or we swale or we create landforms just slightly off contour. And we come from the valleys out to the ridges. So if you look at your hand and you'd say between your, your pointer finger and your, your flip off somebody finger are two ridges, and the point in between them is a valley, the little line in between them is a valley. 
Instead of going on contour through the valley, across the valley, back over, and staying completely level and spreading the water out that way, we actually go about one degree off contour out to the ridge from the valley in both directions. And this spreads the water from the valley to the ridges, but at only 1% grade, it spreads very, very slowly, and we get plenty of infiltration. But what we're trying to do in essence is take the wet valley and, and create more moisture on our ridges. And this can be in a steep slope or a very, very gentle slope. And it works really great on a gentle slope. What we're trying to do, though, is move that water out. We're also killing the erosion because if we don't do this, what happens at a valley? Well, it might be moist in the bottom, but it's not moist high up in the, moist high up in the valley because the water runs downhill like crazy and gets the hell out of Dodge. So we're holding the water in the landscape. The only real difference between key line and contour design is key lines coming slightly off contour in the direction that we most want to push the greater infiltration of water. That is as fast as I can go on that one. Um, next one. Uh, I need 10,000 honey locust and mimosa trees for my toad suck Arkansas civil pasture. How to shell that many pods for scarification and spring nursery planting, goat digestion, chicken peck, and magnet eating. Um, I'll tell you, uh, uh, or bone breaking back porch shucking. I, I think here's, uh, if you want to do mimosa, uh, and locust, the beauty of that is it can actually do this very, very fast. You get a whole bunch of the, the, uh, the, the seed pods together and just start rubbing your hands and just let the seeds fall into a bucket. Right? And I mean, you say thousands, right? 10,000. It seems like a ridiculous number, but it's actually not that hard to get that many seeds or more really, really fast as long as you've been harvesting them and have them. So locust, mimosa, anything else you want to use. And I would say, I'm, if you're going to drew that many trees, I'm not probably growing seedlings in tubes. You could do it if you want to, but I'm probably going to make up 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 seeds. And I'm going to probably go out, and I'm going to probably plant those seeds in the ground. I might get a seed wheel, if you've ever seen one of these, if you've got the right ground for it. You put the seeds in it, and you roll it, and it just plants one seed like every six inches if you're doing beans. I would probably do that with this because you're going to have a lot of failures. Um, scarification, big giant boiling pot of water. You could probably put 5,000 seeds in a load. I mean, it's not really that hard. I would go seed, direct seed in the ground, hot water scarified seeds, uh, and I wouldn't get too worried about trying to clean them perfectly like you're doing them for selling seeds. But the reality is if you shuck them in a bucket like that, and I don't think it has to be hours of backbreaking work, I think it literally is pick up a whole big clump handful of these things and you start rubbing them back and forth and let them fall. And then all you got to do to winnow them is lay out a tarp, take a fan, a small fan, turn it on low, and just dump the seeds in front of the fan. It'll blow all the, the, the shell casings away and you'll have fairly clean seed for your scarification. Take a great big five-gallon bucket, fill it halfway with the seeds, Boil a big old keg, a uh, big old giant uh, stock pot of water. Let the boiling stop. Dump it in the bucket. Let it sit overnight. Put them out in the field the next day. That's that's how I would do it. And I don't know if I would do it with, um, with a seed planter or if I would just go out there and, and and basically kick dirt on them as I walk down the line. 
but it's a pretty uh, ambitious project that you've got there. Uh, but there's no reason it can't be done. Now, when you say 10,000, I wonder if that number's accurate. I wonder if that number's accurate. Um, that's a lot of linear feet at five foot spacing. Uh, just, just saying, like, do your calculations, but that's how I would do it. Um, Derek says, is there a rule for fruit tree spacing in a fall, small food forest? I want to plant as many species as I can in a compact area using pruning to keep them small. What considerations are there for planting close together? It depends. I mean, that's, that's going to be always be the answer, right? But, um, the reality is when you look at things like Dave Wilson and his backyard nursery techniques, they put four trees in one hole and then prune them. So you end up with like, it looks like one big bush with four different plants instead of doing multigraft. I think that's actually uh, a lot better. Now, this is what I actually think. I should be able to walk between my trees. I mean, in, in all actuality, to make this work at all, even with intensive pruning, uh, or at least in between my lines of trees. So I might have trees in a line spaced at four feet and staggered slightly. So they're four feet linearly, but maybe another foot left to right away from each other. And they might eventually grow to where they're like a, a hedgerow. Fine. But before I put another row of trees in there, you know, I'm going to say four to six feet minimum, more like eight. I want to be able to fit through if they're in rows. Or I want to have pathways. So it might be like there's a path like that and places they might come closer together. But take a walk in a forest. Dude, there's plenty of places where you can stand and put your hands up on two trees at the same time, turn 90 degrees and touch two other trees without moving your feet other than to go in a circle. Turn another 90 degrees and find another two trees. So, arms width, double eagle pose. Right? I mean, you could definitely get closer than that with some of your trees, but in your pathway spaces, if you can stand up, put your arms out, maybe not even all the way extended, but your arms like half bent with your palms up, probably make it work. Take a look at YouTube. Google Urban Food Forest. Look at some of the ones that have been built. It depends on your climate, your trees, how much productivity you want to get off of it. Um, but don't stress over it and keep adding more. And if you get to a point where you have things aren't producing because they're too close together, thin out that which is most sacrificable and plan another version of it somewhere in a little bit more open area. Uh, next one from Carl is, when you're doing your first design, where is the best place to start? Uh, Bryn says the highest point in your property, then follow the runoff downhill using key, di key line design and swales. That could be the right answer, but my answer to Carl would be, for most people, You're not If you're not designing a farm, and if you're doing your first design all by yourself, you probably shouldn't design a farm as your first design. You probably should design a, f a smaller property. And though it makes sense to maybe do uh, a project design or something like that on somebody else's property so you don't get emotionally attached to it, your first design you implement is probably best to do in your own backyard. And what I tell people is walk out your back door, Look at everything within 20 feet of you. Design that. Design that. Go out your front door. Look at everything within 20 feet of you. Design that. Go out to one side of your house with everything within 20 feet of you and design that. Not the other side of you with 20 feet and design that. It's your zone one. Your zone one might be bigger than that, but start with that. 
I, I think that is the best way because that's the stuff that's going to be the most productive that you're going to use, that you're going to touch all the time, and it'll get you started. It'll get you thinking because you'll think, well, I want a bush here and a bush there. Okay, I need to be able to get to my backyard from my porch. If I put those two bushes there, a natural pathway is between those two bushes. Since that's a natural pathway, I'm going to put a path there. Now, since that path's there, it's going to create a surface that's going to create a runoff because it's not going to be covered with greenery. That means if I am going to do that, if I find a contour lane line that I can put the path on to continue to the backyard instead of just in a straight line to the fence, I have a water seepage opportunity. I can even crown the path and seep it off both sides. Now, that means I'm going to line the path on both sides with some sort of bedding, some sort of productive beds. Gee, what am I going to put in there? Okay, let's not worry about the path going all the way out to the side fence. Let's just go our 20 feet zone. The path's going to go at least that far. That's all part of zone one. What am I going to put on both sides of that path? See, it's, it's, it's so simple then. All of a sudden, there's this, I just don't know what to do becomes, oh, well, I like strawberries, so I'll put those in there. I like blackberries, put blackberries to the rear, strawberries to the front, okay. Uh, my soil is acidic, so I can add some blueberries into that. As I go a little bit further out from the house, maybe it's a good place for a bush. That's good solar exposure, maybe a fig tree or a pomegranate. Hey, maybe I could do a fig and pomegranate guild right there. Right? And you go, well, I live in Pennsylvania. Well, then put what grows. A dwarf cherry. Be great in Pennsylvania. Right? Um, and, and again, the, the species are not that important. It's the function, the size. Smaller trees, heavily mulched, regular uh, maintenance, probably going to have some irrigation there, all that zone one stuff. That's where I always try to start people with design. Their whole life gets easier that way. When you're thinking about a farm and you got to get some productivity and some money out of it, we got to start thinking about, well, what are my cash crops in the first year? How do I design those systems? But the first design, usually one foot out the door. Get one foot out the door and everything you can see within 20 feet of you, design that first. In fact, sometimes it's best, walk out, look at one foot, one square foot, design it. Then just design the every square foot that touches it. Then design every square foot that touches that. As soon as you start to put some decisions to paper, evaluate them, refine them, and go, that was a dumb idea, not that. But no, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that. And you have a few hard, concrete decisions. You start to create borders, and the design flows. It's, it's like when, if you walk into a room that's 1,800 square feet of open space, bigger than most three-bedroom houses, and I say, okay, put furniture in here, and this is a house. Uh... Start putting some walls in. Oh, that's a bedroom. Okay, a bed goes there. Okay, well, that's going to be a dining area. Okay, a dining table goes there. Okay, I need a light fixture here. I'm going to need, okay, the dining room should join the kitchen so we can bring food. So that's going to be the kitchen area. And it all gets easy. As soon as we start to define any part of it. So wherever you have most concrete understanding of what you want is probably best. But the reason I say to start in that zone one is a lot of times people buy a property and all they can see is a chicken coop and 10 acres of pastured birds and silvo pasture. They have no money to develop that. Start developing what's right close to home. Put down the boundaries and everything flows from there. If you had a, this is from Jason, if you had a couple acres that weren't able to, you weren't able to take care of on a regular basis, could you do the earthworks? Plant it with annuals and perennials and let nature take care of them. Yes, but it's going to go wild and rampant, and that's okay. 
Um, hopefully you would have enough time to go in and do some basic maintenance once in a while. You're probably also going to have a lot of loss to, you know, deer and other wildlife. So that's something to consider. And you would want to move right into perennials. And any annuals, you would either want to be nurse crops for the first season, like cowpea. Uh, or self-seeding annuals that are going to come back time and time again. Not the most productive way to do things, but if you put swales in, and you start infiltrating water, it's going to work better than if you don't. And if you plant your swale berms and your inner swales with specific species that are designed to survive there, the land will progress faster than if you don't. The thing is, it can rapidly sort of get away from you. So the concern is, if later you want to do something more controlled with it, and now you've got a great big tangle where otherwise it could have been maintained more in a field pasture environment, you really need to think about whether you want to do that or not. And don't always be married to earthworks. A lot of times they make sense. A lot of times subtle earthworks are enough. And some places you don't need to do a lot of earthworks. It all depends on what you actually want and what property you're working with and what stage of development you're in. Okay, um, Best species for indo indoor warm water aquaponics, looking for ease of breeding, high omega-3 content, no tilapia. Um, and Derek says to him, to Bradley, channel cats are good. Channel cats would be probably the best you're going to get in that environment. I don't know why you don't want tilapia. Tilapia is probably the best fish for that environment. If you've read any of the slander shit on tilapia, it doesn't apply to your tilapia. There's nothing you could you can breed yourself that's going to be better for that than tilapia. Channel cats are great. You're going to have a hard time breeding them, a, a very hard time breeding them yourself. Most of our native fish species do not have a really rapid growth habitat. Um, it's making them really suitable to indoor aquaponics, and they're not the easiest thing to breed in captivity. Um, hybrid bluegill grow pretty fast, get pretty big pretty quick, and make a, a, a table-sized meal pretty fast. Um, but they're not the easiest thing for a person in a small environment to breed. Um, if you want a lot of fish production, then what you want is you want aquaculture. You don't want aquaponics. Aquaponics is not a fish production system. It's not what it is. It's not what it is. It's not what it is. And it's never, ever, 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 ever infinity going to be a heavy fish production system. Aquaponics is not about producing fish. Aquaponics is about using fish to produce vegetables and fruits in some situations. The fish are a byproduct. They're nice to get out of it. But you will never get a very high level of fish out of an aquaponics system. Never, 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 never infinity. Okay, And people want to believe this because it makes a good way to sell a lot of stuff to preppers that think the world is going to end and you're going to get all your meat and fish out of one system. Well, let's look at it this way. A lot of systems will say, well, this system produces 100 fish. Okay, great. And when I go fishing for white bass, we take a limit of 25 white bass per angler. And we go out and if there's two of us, that means we put 50 fish in the boat. And we'll go spend 20, 30 minutes with an electric fillet knife filleting the hell out of them. And one fish fry with a few family members over, most of those fish are gone. Because they're just not that big. But they are about as big as just about everything that comes out of an aquaponics system. If you want high levels of fish, you know, where you can take enough each year to make a significant portion of your protein diet, 
You want ponds, not aquaponics tanks. Just saying. If you want the most fish you can get breeding yourself in an aquaponics system, there's a reason all the people in Australia hate you that you can get tilapia and they can't. They are the best fish for meat production in an aquaponics system. Uh, the next one comes from Kyle. Kyle said, if you're looking to sell your house in the next year, how would you implement a system that will be more buyer-friendly and not scare them off, or would you handle this differently? I guess you mean in regards to permaculture, Kyle, and the answer is I would do almost nothing with permaculture. From a true, heavy permaculture implementation with a one-year timeline to sell a property. You sell a property, you have two types of properties you're selling. Exceptional properties marketed to people that understand why they're exceptional. And normal properties marketed to everybody else. So when I had my property in Arlington, I could have taken and done some really amazing urban permaculture things there. But by the time I really understood and discovered permaculture, I knew we were selling that property soon. And I didn't want a lot of things that were hard for a person to understand. So we stuck to basic garden beds and planting fruit trees. So if I was looking to maximize the, the, the saleability of a property, and I wanted to do some things permaculture-esque, and it's fall, I would go out to all the box stores right now and find a few really decent specimens of fruit trees that are available out there right now, or maybe pick somebody some of them up, you can order them from Bob Wells or something like that, and I'd put some fruit trees in. I would do them in a general landscaping model, though, Maybe plant a few other bushes and vines here and there if I wanted to accentuate that. I wouldn't put more than 500 bucks into it. I'd make sure they're watered, and I'd make sure anybody that looked at it goes, Oh, that's a nice tree. That's a nice tree. Susie Homemaker doesn't give a shit about apples. Goes, that's a nice tree. And the real estate agent goes, Did you know that's an apple tree? You can pick apples off it. Oh, that's nice. And the person that has a permaculture eye goes, Well, that's great. Or they might go, That's in the wrong place. But you know what? They ain't been there that long. They're going to move it if they have a different opinion than you. And that's it. The secret to selling your home is so simple. And I can put together a course that I sold for $500 that says secrets to selling your home in any market and cite as uh, evidence that it works the five houses that I've sold all in less than two weeks for asking price or better, uh, including site-built homes, older homes, mobile homes, you name it, in some of the worst economic conditions that were ever done. And I could do that, and I could write long sales copy, and I could probably sell the shit out of it. The people that paid the money for it would say, that's great, I love that. Um, got my money's worth. First time you sell a house, you're like, wow, I was worth 500 bucks. But I'm going to give you the basics of it right here, right now, and it is always, 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 forever infinity, the same answer. And you just have to understand the psychology of the buyer in a real estate market to know this is the fact. Okay, so 99% of people that will ever see a house for sale that have any potential ever, ever, ever of actually buying it will fit into the following description. There will be people looking to buy a house. In looking to buy a house, they will have figured out how much money they can spend. They'll at least sanity check that against you know mortgage rates and whether they qualify for a mortgage or not. And if they don't qualify for enough money to buy your house, they're not a qualified buyer and you don't care. Let me say it again. You don't care about those people. Not you don't care about them as human beings, but you don't give a shit about their opinion. You do not care because they're not qualified to buy your house. When it comes to selling a house, you only care about the people qualified that either have the money or access the money to get your house for a fair price. That's it. 
So we know that. So we know that people don't buy a house this way. They don't go out and see a house and go, I like that house. How much is it? Right? It's not like browsing on a shelf. There's looky-loos that go out and look at houses for sport or they're professional investors or they're getting ready to sell and they're going to do what I'm going to tell you to do. But buyers have a budget and then they go either to do this on research on their own on sites like Realtor or they get a real estate agent and they say, we're looking to buy a house. This is what we want. Minimum three bedrooms, right? We want, you know, let's say a two-car garage. It'd be great if we had a fourth bedroom. We're not sure if we can afford it. We want to be in this area, near this school or this zip code or near John's work or whatever. And that immediately takes these thousands and thousands of houses and puts them down into a much shorter list of properties that they can afford that are in the area they're willing to consider living in. All right? This is how 90% of people or more buy a house. They then begin to peruse pictures and listings and decide whether or not they'd want to be there or not. And they make a shorter list of ones that qualify for their time to physically go look at. Huh? And they go look at those houses with their real estate agent, who's probably as useless as tits on a boar hog, by the way. In most instances, this is what I've found. There's some good agents out there. If you find one, they're like gold. Hold on to them. Refer other people to them. So now again, you've got the couple, their budget's $165,000. This means they're mostly going to look at houses from $150,000 to $170,000 in value. There are some brain-dead real estate agents that are going to show them $200,000 houses. The reality, though, is you know, Tom and Dana, will name this couple, cannot afford a $200,000 house. That's why they have a budget of $165,000. Now, occasionally, when buyers are looking... They will eventually realize they can't get what they want and they can get a bigger mortgage and they're willing to. And they don't, they just simply become a new qualified buyer to somebody else at that point. While they're looking, all they're looking at is houses within about $20,000 of their budget, up and down on both sides of it, at the most. Which means if they're a $165,000 buyer, they're not looking at your $115,000 house. All right? And if you have a $115,000 house, The person with a $75,000 budget is not looking at it either. There's a very narrow window because people believe in real estate that if you go too much under your budget, you're going to get less than you want. And you can't go over because there's a limit to how much money you can get. So you got that? So if once you understand that, the formula to sell a house and prep your house for selling is it's simplistic. You do a market valuation or you get several real estate agents bidding to be the agent to list your house, at least three. All three of them come by, tell you how they market a home. You don't really care because you already know more than they do just from my conversation with you right now. But you do want to know that they're competent. Each of them is going to do a market analysis. They're going to take comparable homes that have sold in your area in the last six months and tell you what they think your house will sell for. You'll get that number from all three of them, add it up, and then divide by three to get the average. That's a pretty good guess as to what your house is going to sell for. Some go way high, some go way low. By getting three, you get a look at three different agents, and you also get a much better free market analysis of your home and its value. You now go look at what's on the market in your neighborhood. You say you want to view some houses. So you go out and you, you go and you, you contact the agent listing the house or whatever, and you go look about you know five, six, seven houses in your general area, selling for about the same money you're selling your house for, you take copious notes when you look at the house. And you determine what are the biggest shortcomings in those houses. Do they all have holes in the wall? Are they all older houses? Do they all have low-end fixtures? 
what are the biggest shortcomings from the average buyer's appeal point in those houses in your price range. You go back and you allocate a budget, whatever you have, to stage your home. You probably allocate a budget to at least get a 10 by 10 storage area for a few months for most people, not everybody, but most people, and you take a whole bunch of your non-essential shit and you put it in that storage building until you move to your new house. Okay? You get it out of the way and you declutter. You then take your budget and you look at everything in those other houses as a deficiency that your house shares and you do everything you can to make your house just 5 to 10% better than everything else on the market. That's it. So if all of the houses in your price range have low-end laminate countertops, you don't go putting in polished expensive granite because that's at a different level than your house will ever be. But if the budget's there, you might call up a company to do a really good-looking high-end laminate countertop. If everybody has high-end laminate at that price range, then you look for entry-level stone solid surface. Right? If everybody has custom cabinetry, you go a little bit higher. If everybody has builder-grade cabinetry, maybe you do a custom refacing. Okay, You get rid of everything in your home that's over the top in color. If you have a green room, you paint it taupe. If you have a red room, you paint it taupe. If you have a purple room with yellow accents, you paint it taupe and you trim it in white. Either do it yourself or you hire somebody to do it. If you have shitty old carpet, you put new carpet in. You put in builder beige. Tell the carpet people to bid on that. They'll know exactly what you're talking about. You put in neutral colors everywhere. And here's why. Because when Tom walks in and he likes a purple room, but he sees a yellow room, for some reason people are idiots. You have to play to the lowest common denominator. Most people are stupid. And Tom can see, right, turning a taupe room into a purple room. Which for some reason Tom likes purple rooms. I don't know. He's brain damaged. But if it's red, he just can't understand paint covers paint the same way. Doesn't get it. So you go with neutral colors. You arrange your furniture spaced out. I know we're off homesteading, but this is a great question because this is going to save so many people so much heartache and, and, and make people so much more money when it comes to selling your home so much faster. You space out your furniture. You get rid of some of your crap. I know you think you need it. You don't. I don't care if you sell it. I don't care if you store it. I don't care what you do. Get it out of the way. So everything's spaced out. So when you have your furniture arranged a certain way in your living room and Tom doesn't like it, Tom can see in his head, well, I can move my couch there. So Because if you have it crammed full, he's not going to understand that it's all going to go away. Okay? If you can't put new carpets in, you hire professional carpet cleaners to clean the house. You make sure there's no animal smells in your home. If there's a hole in a wall, fix it. If there's a hole in a floor, fix it. If there's a hole in a cabinet, fix it. If there's anything that's a hole, make it go away. Clean everything top to bottom. It might not be a bad idea to hire a, a, a house cleaning company to come in right before you list it and do a better job than you feel like doing. Absolutely sparkling. Okay? So we're 5% better, we're absolutely sparkling, there's no dog smells, all holes are patched, all colors are neutral, and everything's just a little bit better. If nobody has a deck, we can put in a little small deck that's inexpensive to put in. It's an added feature that nobody else has. If everybody else has a small deck, we need to make our deck a little bit more awesome. Okay, That's all we're doing, 5% better than everybody else. Okay. 
The next thing we're going to do is we're going to make a book. A three-ring binder with little tabs on it. One of the tabs is going to say something like the schools. And you're going to have the elementary, the middle, the junior high, and the high school. And information about them and where they're at. Okay, and if you know anything in particularly interesting about it, you're going to include that. Utilities and services, who the electric companies are, who the Internet service providers are, and the different services they ask, and how much is available. Anything that might be interesting to somebody that wants to move into your area. Where the water company's located, where they can go down and get their service started, or how they pay their bills there. Everything like that. Utilities, schools, stores, shops, restaurants, okay? You make this book about 50 pages long, you type everything up, you cut and paste shit off the internet, you put it in there, you print it out, you put a three-hole punch to work, you put it inside that book, and you put a really cool picture of the, the front, the listing brochure that the real estate agent made and the clear jacket on the front of that book, and you put on there everything you need to know about living in our home, or your new home would be better, and you set that on a thing and you tell a real estate agent, if that disappears, I'm going to cut your hands off, make two of them because it might disappear. He set that there, and, you know, I don't remember what I called her. So I say, Tom and Susie come in, and they've looked at a bunch of other $165,000 homes. Yours is one sixty six five, Just a little above that round number. Low enough that they'll go look at it anyway. Who knows? It could pay off. They walk in, and there's no yellow rooms. There's no purple rooms. The countertops are nicer than anything they've seen before. Everything's clean. There's no holes in the walls. There's no dog smells. There's no cat smells. There's no kids' toys scattered all over the place. It's open. It's clean. It's refreshing. Maybe you baked a few cookies right before you left the house. So the smell of chocolate chip cookies in there. No, I'm not kidding. And everything's just a little bit better than everything they've ever seen before. Done. If they're serious and they really want the area and they're going to buy any home around yours, they're going to buy your home. And if they need to be pushed off the fence, they say they're, they're, they're reject of a real estate agent. Cause most, I'm sorry if you're a real estate agent, I piss you off, but most of you guys are not good at what you do. You don't even know what I'm telling people right now, so don't tell me you are. If you know this, then you should be doing it. You're not offended because you know this is why most of the agents you're competing against get their ass kicked by you, right? So you ask your real estate agent, hey, can I get DSL here? You know, I, I don't know. Um, it, it looks like a modern neighborhood. You think you can get, oh wait, look at this book. Uh, Comcast. Cable, internet services, twenty nine ninety nine a month, AT&T, and the guy's still over there rambling on about nonsense. Uh, who's the, who's the, is there gas service here? I, I don't know. I didn't see a meter. Uh, gas, uh, gas, yeah, there's a gas line here. Oh, all the appliances are gas. Oh, that's good to know. Right? Average gas bill, $29 a month. Well, that's pretty cheap. Right? And anything that's unique to your house that you might need service, who do you use for service? If you have a well, getting a plumber is easy. Getting someone else out to work on a well is not as easy. If you have a house with a well, find someone that will work on it. Sooner you're going to need them, put that in the book. We're on well water. Well, what do I do if the well breaks? Well services provided by. Water softener services provided by. Phone number, address, name of the contact there. Huh. I wonder what restaurants are around here. I think I saw Applebee. Oh, look at this. Our ten favorite restaurants. Where they're at. These three do takeout service. These two do deliveries. Here's their phone numbers and addresses. There's a link to their websites. Holy crap. You know what they're thinking? Man, these people love this place. I don't even know why they're selling it. And they must have took care of everything. 
you've just kicked everybody's ass in your price range. I went long on that one, but yeah, that's how you sell a house. And I just gave you a $500 seminar for free. And I am serious about that. The information I gave you is well worth over $500. And I could make it longer just to sell it for that. I'm not going to. That's not my business. Next question by John Paul Shimada. I'm allowed to say that. He's an element partner. He doesn't care if I use his last name. Does Honey Badger give a shit? And Norm Hardy says, no, he don't. Yeah, you're right. Honey Badger don't give a shit. Uh, next up. Dan says, I have 60 gallons of acorns that rake up each other uh, each year. What do I do with them? I live in the suburbs. The acorns act like ball bearings on my driveway. Mulch, trash, tree rat bait. Um, it depends. If you know anybody that raises hogs anywhere nearby, they would sure love to have those. Um, and as far as squirrels, I just don't think you can probably run out of acorns with squirrels. Um, if you compost them, they'll break down, but a lot of them will start growing. So it's really it's yard waste. Um, if you had some way to crack them, smash them up, put them through a chipper or something like that. I've never put acorns through a chipper, so I don't know how that works out. You'd get a lot more of a quick composting action out of them. They are quite tannic, so you do have to think about that. In a suburb situation, your acorns are pretty much yard waste. So we're either going to compost them or get rid of them. But I guarantee you, if you have any local pork producers, they'd be very interested in having those acorns. Because many of them are trying to grow oak trees that won't be producing acorns for, oh, I don't know, quite a while. In fact, Kevin from Perma Ethos just brought, I think, 400 pounds of acorns from his residential property, semi-residential property, up to Perma Ethos just for hog food. I will warn you one thing about acorns. Not for cows. Not for cows. A lot of times I'll be cooking food and the dogs look at me like, huh, I want some filet mignon, and I'll say it's not for dogs, right? Well, acorns are not for cows. We actually have a cow with mild acorn poisoning at Permaethos right now that we're working on getting her over that condition. So um, those of you with, with livestock, you need to think about cattle and acorns do not mix. Um, next one, uh, what is a good permaculture solution for to cabbage moths and larvae? Um, you know... The best solution to any pest is healthy soil. I know it sounds oversimplified, but it's true. When you have really healthy soil and really healthy plants, even if there's a little bit of pest action on your plants, you're not going to have any real heavy losses. If you have heavy pest damage most of the time, it's because your soil's not healthy enough yet. And I think another reason people, especially with collards, kale, cabbage, broccoli, etc., get such damage is they plant 10 plants. Seeds cheap. Plant a hundred. Let them have some of it. Let them let them find the weak and take out the weak, and, and you take the strong. Um, but healthy soil, deep mulch, well irrigated, you'll have a lot less losses, and sometimes that takes time to build up that soil health. Uh, but things like compost tea do a lot for that. Um, greenhouse. What? This is from Kevin. Says, what do you think the best type of structure for a quarter acre property? And also for a large acre property. Uh, size of the property doesn't really matter unless you're using the greenhouse to produce things to grow on the property. My rule with a greenhouse is if you think you want an 8 by 10 greenhouse, uh, then put at least a 10 by 14 in. So decide what size you want and go at least one size bigger. As far as the type of structure, um, I think for economy's sake, uh, large greenhouses, it's hard to beat a, a tunnel design with plastic top. 
It really is. And you get, you know, five to ten years out of a, a plastic covering, depending on what you use in your climate and how it's used, et cetera. So it's probably the best for a large-scale operation. And if you go to any of the people that are either producing a lot of food or a lot of plants and using greenhouses in their operation, you're going to see tunnels, usually high tunnels. For a homesteader, I think if you can do it, I think you're better off putting in a, a, a solidly built wood frame structure with windows or greenhouse-style panels and in making it a hard structure. I really do. I think it's going to work better for you. You're going to have less issues with it being damaged by wind, collapsed due to ice and snow, etc. I think it makes a lot of sense to have it plumbed, and it makes a lot of sense to have electricity there, and it might even make sense to have gas plumbed out to it. So you can heat at least parts of it. Um, you know, It's great to consider things like rocket mass heaters inside them and all, and I think that can work, but it's hard to beat especially in climates where you only need to heat maybe 60 days a year, not in a row, but 60 days out of the year where you're cold enough to really need to heat a greenhouse, you know, good gas heater. It's, it's, and the smaller the greenhouse, the easier it is to keep warm. And again, a lot of things in greenhouses don't need to be heated, even if it's going to go below freezing. If I'm getting uh, collards and, like from the last question, collards and broccoli, it's going to frost. I don't need them heated in greenhouse. They'll be fine. But if I have tender stuff, I can put up a divider in that greenhouse and heat one side of it. And my most tender of the less sensitive stuff can go up against that divider and get a little residual warmth from it there. We can put chickens in them. There's all kinds of ways to do that. But power and water, solid structure, at least one size larger than you think you need is the way that I would go. And when I build mine, I'm definitely going to put plumbing to it, but I'm also going to put sprinkler system in it to where I could set it with an automatic timer and it waters itself. Another big thing with greenhouses, make sure you have some sort of automated venting system. One of the piston-based ones that at a certain temperature it just opens a vent because you can forget to open them and cook all your plants. Paul says, we have a well. Is there a grid-down way to pressurize your house manually barring massive battery backups? Short-term, really easy. They're called pressure tanks. We have them in my home. I have one, two, three three, four pressure tanks here. One out in the main shop that helps pressurize the whole house and three smaller remote ones throughout the, the house. This means if my well shuts off, we still have adequate water. It's not great, but it's adequate water pressure to most of the places in the house uh, for about 200 gallons. No, let's see, 75 and then 50 and 50, so that's 175 and another 50, 225 gallons of water we'll, we still have access to. And, but that's a short-term solution. But that's that's great. It's, it's, you know the power's out. We haven't hooked up any generators or anything like that yet. Okay, fine. It's cool. We're all good and well. Um, we just ration now and like to wash a pot, wash your hands, get some water out. You're gonna be good for a couple days that way. So that's the that's the simplest way. Um, there's a couple other ways we can do this. One would be to put in a water tower and pump water up to it and use gravity to create pressure. Now, you're not going to get a lot of pressure, but even something in the neighborhood of you know 12 feet, uh, you're going to get water come out of the faucet. And there are other options that don't require a lot of power. Now, we're actually using this product on grid at Permaethos to provide pressure for water out to... Uh, Jesse's RV and for showers for our woofers and some other things. But there's a little pump 
uh, made by Sureflow, S-H-U-R-F-L-O. Uh, the model number, the one we have, and the one recommended by Stephen Harris, which is where we learned about it, is 2088-594-154. gallons per minute, 115 volts, and uh, the draw is about 100 watts maximum. It's on demand, so it's not drawing any power unless you're asking for water. Um, that could be run on a very small battery bank and solar panel system for backup. And what does this amazing device cost? On Amazon, 79 bucks. It's available through a lot of other places like Northern Tool, etc. Uh, available as well. Uh, I'm going to be putting one of these in for my misting system with my 1,500-gallon tank, my rain catchment tank, so I can run my misting system and some of my other irrigation with pressure without actually using this really hard alkaline water that I have that clogs everything up and what have you. So, yeah, you'd need a battery backup system or whatever for that, but if you had a, a, a cistern, a storage tank of some kind that the water was routed through and there was always that reserve there, should you then need to rely on it, you're not then having to pump the water up out of the well and then up into the house. All you're doing is pressurizing it. Um, and, yeah, a small, even like... One 12-volt battery, and you keep an eye on the, the charge and top it off with a battery charger to run to your car. I mean, and a small inverter, you could run this thing enough to get water when you need it. It's a really great solution. That's why it's no surprise it comes from Stephen Harris. Again, SureFlow Demand Delivery Water Pump, model number 2088-594-154. Uh, that's the product recommendation I have. There's probably other good ones as well. Next question. Um, could bamboo be used as fuel for a heat source such as a rocket mass heater? Sure. Of course it could. Is it going to be as efficient as uh, oak? No. But it's pretty easy to replace itself once it's been established, and it's very renewable. Um, and a rocket mass heater, again, we're heating the heater. And once the heater is heated, we have residual heat. Um, it will never be what, you know, twigs and sticks off oak and birch will be, but it's it's pretty good stuff. And it does burn really hot really fast. And that's not bad in a rocket mass heater. So, yes. Charles says, can you talk about strategies to grow on a north-northwest slope with 15 to 30% slope halfway down the mountain? Terracing strategies. Um, dude, it's your land. You have to figure it out. Uh, everybody wants to get so specific. Well, my thing so much different. Okay, look. Wherever you, I don't know where you live, right? So... You're talking about a northwest slope. You're talking about shade most of the day. You're talking about sun at the end of the day. You're talking about a place that gets really, really cold and at times really, really hot. In your climate, there are things that will survive there. That's what you plant there. That's I, I mean, this is where people want to get really, really minute with things, but without all the details necessary to do so. Um, and I know it's a, I don't want to pick on you, Charles. I know it's a, a Facebook post and you can only say so much, but I mean, it doesn't matter. In the end, that's what I'm going to tell you is what grows in your climate that will handle that environment. Strategies. Um, well, you know, the slope 15 to 30%. 30% is a significant slope. So you have to look at how big a terrace is going to be, how much material you're going to have to move, how much of a budget you have. What are the risks of going too far out with your terrace and creating collapse scenarios? You start working with stuff like that on a large scale, you need to get professional earth movers in there and have a conversation with them, not just about what can be done, but what can be done safely. 
what's going to be necessary to stabilize it long term. Uh, it's not the best environment, but something will grow there. Figure out what already is growing there. So odds are stuff's growing there. It's not this big, empty, desolate space. Things are growing there. And then either grow the versions of those things that have the productivity you're looking for or analogs thereof. So if, if oaks are growing there, it's probably the case the chestnuts would do okay. So then you go get Chinese chestnuts and you plant those. Whether or not the terrace, that's very, very site-specific, and you got to really do your own analysis on that. Uh, next one is Kevin's, not Kevin, hold on, I lost my place here. What kind of earthworks are feasible with a 25-horsepower tractor and a three-point hitch? So I didn't say whether or not you have a front-end loader or not, but I've actually seen some pretty nice swales done with front-end loaders on small tractors just by pushing the, the so you get on the upgrade side, put the blade into the ground, and push the dirt out, almost like a little bulldozer. And you can do quite a bit with that in some soil types, right? And then you can go around the other side and kind of dress it up with the bucket if you want to. There was a great video of somebody doing this at uh, Permaculture Global. I don't know that I can find it, but I'll try to find it. And if I do, I'll put it in the show notes for today. But when you talk about a hitch, now we're talking about, well, we can pull a plow or something like that. Funny you should ask. Funny you should ask. So Nick Ferguson and I, we're trying to figure out how do we expand the gardens up at Perma Ethos mainly as the main food supply gardens for the people that live there, the landowners and the woofers, etc. So what Nick came up with was, well, why don't we just take this two-point plow, I think it's a two-point plow that they have up there, put it behind our little tractor, which I think is a 25-horsepower Kubota, if I remember right. It's, it's in that range, little front-end loader bucket on it. Let's put it, let's mark a contour line, let's put it in the ground on contour, And let's cut a plow line. Then let's move over one, one section over downhill and cut a second cut into the contour. And, and do so so it's not two furrows. We've got one wide furrow now and all the dirt's been pushed downhill to make a little bitty microswale. Then let's get the woofers in there by hand with hose, level out the, 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 the furrow so that now it's a footpath. Dress up the downhill side and plant into it. And that's exactly what we did. And Nick seeded it with kale and a bunch of other turnips and all kinds. And it's just lettuces and radishes. And it's just blowing up with food now. But the plan long term is to keep adding compost and material to the berm. And they're spaced out so they're just wide enough to be like conventional garden beds. And eventually... The, the bed will go down to the next ledge of the next footpath. It'll, look, it'll get bigger and bigger. It'll be about a four-foot-wide bed by the time it's all over with. And they're doing all their composting just above us. That's one way. Now, we have this 18 acres to do all this earthworks to. And we're how do we do this and get it all developed in one year and not spend a fortune and not get into really big, heavy equipment? And we learned about that property that... There's so much clay, and when you open up too much earth, it's very hard to get stuff to regrow. You create erosion where it never was before. So what are we going to do? On, I think we've decided 10-foot spacings. We're going to mark contour lines. We'll take a little bit bigger of a plow. Go up there and plow on the hillsides the same way. Create berms, row of trees, row of understory, row of trees, row of understory, row of trees on 10-foot spacings. And as the trees canopy out longer down the way, a lot of the center understory will go away. You'll have a 20-foot spacing, civil pasture in between. And that can all be done with 
for us on the slope, probably a little bit bigger of a tractor is going to be necessary to hire someone. But it's always easy to find people to do that. Now, if you're on relatively flat land and permaethos is not flat, you could do it with that. You know, a, a conventional plow on contour and then make two passes on each line instead of one. And all you do is mark a contour line, stick flags on the ground and run them over. And then when you go to the next line, you just go, you just put the plow on the ground and stay on the edge of it and just keep going. You can do it three times. Do as many times as you want and keep pushing it downhill. Very simple. We could also take that same tractor and lay out a key line design and do the same thing or even one pass infiltration plowing to spread our water from our valleys to our ridge lines with a key line design. So there's just a few things I can think of you could do, uh, with a relatively small tractor and a three point hitch. Uh, next one, what are the best uses for coffee grounds from Charles? Uh, fertilizer, just, it doesn't need to be composted. It's a gentle mulch fertilizer fertility ad. You can just spread it around wherever you're growing stuff. It'll feed worms, it'll feed microbes, it'll break down in the soil, it won't burn anything. You can compost it, you can put it in a verma bin and, and make vermicompost out of it. But the best use for coffee grinds on a daily basis, if you don't want to do anything but improve the tilth and fertility of your soil, is just spread it out in your garden. I'd say the next best use is inoculate it with mushrooms, grow mushrooms, get mushrooms, and then spread it out in your garden. And you can grow oyster mushrooms this way. Get a five-gallon bucket, fill it with coffee grinds. Go buy an oyster mushroom, just one. You don't even need spawn. Break it up and mix it into your coffee grinds. It'll start growing oyster mushrooms. While they're growing, get another bucket. When it's full of, of, of coffee grinds, take one of your oyster mushrooms from your last fruiting batch, break it up, stick it in there, take a handful of the coffee grinds from the other bucket, stick that in there, mix it up, Take that bucket, spread it out in your garden. That's the best use I can think of for coffee grounds. But Ryan says, still waiting for Uncle Jack's Herb Spiral, small, medium, and large blueprints, please. Don't hold your breath. I am not a huge fan of the Herb Spiral. I'm really not. I think for small urban backyards, and you want to maximize space, and you have a little Herb Spiral right out the kitchen door where you can reach out and grab your, your, your herbs, fine. I'd rather put herbs through my whole design, just personally. Uh, especially if I don't have space at a real super premium. And I'll tell you the thing about herb spirals. They were designed for Mediterranean climates. In many climates, they become weed spirals, and they require quite a bit of maintenance. So think about it before you build one, just because everybody thinks you're supposed to have one. Um, do you have tips for how to best evaluate potential home-based income enterprise business opportunities? How to gauge what my best market opportunities are? Follow your passion, Stephen. Stephen asked that question. Follow your passion. Figure out something you love, figure out how to do something with it, and develop a market around it. Um, there's no magic formula to this, but it takes a lot of work to build a business. If you're not passionate about it, if you don't love it, you probably won't put the, the, the work and the, and the effort into it. Uh, that, that, I've done whole business shows. That's about as much as I can do on that one in a show like today. Um, will trees planted around an unlined pod cause leaks? If so, how to avoid this? Uh, yes and no. Um, people think ponds are supposed to be watertight. Ponds are not supposed to be watertight. What ponds are supposed to do is supersaturate soil to the point where if it leaks, it doesn't matter. And it seeps into the surrounding landscape. The only part of a pond that really needs to be watertight is on the dam breast where the impoundment is and the keyway. So the keyway is before we start building the dam up, 
we dig a trench down, we take our best material and we put it and pound it and pack it into that keyway, and then we put our dam breast in and we, we lock the dam breast into the keyway. And that needs to be watertight. That's the impoundment. And that's why the keyway actually goes below the depth of the bottom of the pond. So if you had a pond where right up at the dam breast the pond was 8 feet deep, your keyway might be 10 or 12 feet deep. So we're actually blocking the flow of water below the bottom of the pond through the earth itself. Got it? Okay. Now, all of the space back behind the keyway, upgrade, that, that surface area isn't watertight. Now, hopefully it's compacted. Hopefully it doesn't just run out like sand. That's not going to work. But water does flow into the land around it. So if you have trees planted upgrade from the pond, and they do put some pokes and holes and stuff in the pond, you're not going to lose all the water out of the pond. Because the flow of the water, think about it this way. If you had a dam in a stream, and a tree was growing below the bed of the stream, up into the stream, all the stream water is not going to run out the hole. Right? So it's a lot slower flow, but you have flow of water across and through and under the land. That's what you're impeding. So when you have a brand new dam, a brand new dam filling up for the first time, and the water's just beginning to fill in it, if you walk down to the water, close your eyes and your mouth so you don't drown yourself or get a bunch of water in your nose or whatever, and stick your head under the water, or if it's, a, if it's big enough yet, go ahead and just walk out in the water and like go in like you're baptizing yourself. You know, Go under the water and listen. It'll sound like a giant slurping a straw. You'll hear this. That's the land sucking the water up. So if that's already happening, we might want to think about what trees we plant where and what have you. But trees around the pond are not a problem. We don't want them on the breast. We don't want them getting into the keyway. Basically, the rule is anything on a damn breast that gets to a size it's going to be difficult to take it down with a machete. Take it down with a machete before you can't, and you'll probably be fine. Bamboo is great on a dam breast because it's shallow-rooted and it locks. Uh, Maypop would be good on a dam breast. Anything with a good interlocking, heavy-duty root system on your dam breast. Now, you get down below your keyway with a, a sizable dam where you still have the, the, the structure of the berm, but we're far from the keyway, we can start planting better, larger trees in there. And that's actually good because they'll help lock it up. We could even plant some trees kind of close to the keyway, but we don't want anything with a tap root there. Those are our big concerns. But around the edges and further back, uh, no. Now, if you've created some kind of pond that's basically a hole, that's, that's, it, it, you, you've basically created a naturally lined pond the way you would have created a pond with a pond liner, then we could have problems with trees puncturing the side of the dam. Or if you've created a really deep, small pond in a steep landscape where we need to compact it and we're actually holding it more like a tank, in those situations we have to be very careful with tree roots. Because, yeah, they can pop up. Because basically you've not created a pond, you've created a tank. So it depends on what you've actually created and what you're trying to protect. Okay, um... Next question comes from Charles. Charles says, what's the best fencing for pasture rotation and or silvopasture? Uh, it depends. Um, I, I, what it makes me think of immediately is Joel Salton's advice 
that he must give ten times every time he does a talk about pasturing animals and fencing. His advice is never put in a permanent fence until you've used a fence, an area fenced for three years. And you've actually decided, like, there is going to always be a fence here. Don't invest the money until you've used the fence for three years. For pigs, what he does for fencing, he takes rebar, which is cheap. You knock it in with a, a, a post hole uh, digger, or not a, a fence pounder, and you put little insulators on it, and you run two lines of electro wire. That's it. And it works great. And I, I imagine you could scale that up a little bit and use it for cattle. Um, they have the, the ones that are made for cattle that you put in the ground that just have a loop in them. They're designed for the electric tape. That's what I would use. That's what I would use until you're absolutely sure, 100% times infinity, that a fence will always be here. Now, Sibo pasture creates a unique opportunity long term, especially if inside your Sibo pasture you're planting really hardy, fast-growing legumes like mimosa or locusts. As you do that, at first you can use this temporary fencing, but as the trees get bigger, and Mark does this even with like his chestnut and apple trees, you take a, an insulator, And you tack it to the side of the tree along the, the line on the, the civil pasture line. And you run your electric wire along those insulators tacked to the tree. And the cattle can get right up to the tree. And they can browse all the lower branches off so you don't get any fungal infections from water splashing off the ground. And they can stick their head under the wire and they can browse all along the edge of the trees. But they don't actually hurt the trees. And any of your understory that you don't want the cattle to browse unless you put them in there purposefully. You just put them far enough away from the fence so the cow can't reach it. And essentially what you do is you use low-cost things like rebar as, as portable, cheap, disposable, or repurposable material during the establishment phase as you grow a silvo pasture. And as you, you get a mature silvo pasture, the trees themselves become your fence posts. So all you're paying for is insulators, wiring, and something to put power through it. Now, If we're doing chickens, this does not hold a chicken in. I have become more and more convinced that there's, 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 there's two ways to do chickens. And only two ways to do chickens on pasture. There's a chicken tractor. And if you're doing Cornish crosses, I don't give a damn what Paul Wheaton says. It's the only thing you need to do. It's really the only thing you need to do. We, we had a plan at Perma Ethos, put the chickens in the chicken tractors, and then put a big halo of electro net around them. And then open up the chicken tractor during the day like a coop. So they could all go out and then come back to the coop. And by the time those birds are like four and a half, five weeks old, you know what they think about going out? They don't want to go out. They're like job of the hut. They're like, you grain, dob, 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 dob. That's it, man. All they want to do is sit there. They want to eat. They want to drink. And they want to sleep. And they want to stay in as much shade as possible. They don't want to get too wet and they don't want to get too hot. So if you're doing Cornish Cross or Heritage Whites or something like that that are purpose meat bird, I say you chicken tractor those things. Birds that are like Freedom Rangers and things like that, if you want to do those for meat birds, I think you can go more with Electronet. Um, I think the best use of Electronet for chickens is a mobile coop, Electronet, dedicated laying birds that are too fat, heavy, and sorry ass to fly over the Electronet. Everything else... You know, two-strand or one-strand wire uh, with insulators off the trees or off temporary posts, I think, is the best way to go. And that's what the guys that make a lot of money doing it do, and that's what the guys with a lot of experience. You look at Jeff Lott, and he's using uh, the movable ones for his laneways and movable ones for the, the paddocks, 
and they're just basically a, a piece of steel with a hole designed in it, kind of bent around that hole like a key ring looks, and you just run your electric tape through there to move your fence. So you move the tape and leave the posts in place or move them as, if you need to. Um, Joel, again, is doing more of a rebar, and the electric wire is pretty daggone cheap, and you, you, you might move parts of it here and there, but mostly you put it in place and it's there. Uh, you take it down and put animals in, put it back up to hold them in. Hogs need to be trained uh, because that, that they will break through that wire until they're trained. So the way you do that is you, you build a corral, basically, for them that they can't get out of, and then within that you put in a, a ring of the electric wire. And when they're young, for a few weeks, you put, you know, put them in there and you keep them in a confinement setting at first. And then they very quickly learn, hey, that wire sucks. And when you put them out on pasture, they will not jack with the wire. They'll stay in. It's working really well for us up at Permaethos. That's exactly what we did there. Uh, Shane says, how do you find the max rain event for calculating your swale size? So, I mean, the question is a little bit backwards. Don't worry, I'm going to give you the answer to... Uh, how to find a maximum rain event, but how do you calculate it to find a swale size? It's really not what we do. We don't build a swale to our maximum rain event. We actually want to build a swale to average rain events or typical average maximums on an annual basis so that we make sure we're able to capture the rain, uh, as much of the rainfall as possible given the size of the swale. So really what we're concerned with is if it, if it generally never rains enough to fill a two meter wide swale, there's not really a lot of reason to build one. Okay. So that's a sw The swale catches the water. Okay. Now we put sills and overflow points in swales for when we exceed the swales capacity. What we need to know the maximum rain event So if you're, I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna make sure I'm couching this the right way. Like your hundred-year flood number. See, and that's the problem that a lot of this permaculture stuff comes out of Australia, and they use a different term than we do. They say maximum precipitation or maximum rain event. That we in America we call that a hundred-year flood. Okay, so that's what we need to know is what is the the highest amount of rain that we can generally expect ever to occur here. And we need to size our sills, our overflows, our spillways, etc., to that number. The swale itself, most of the time, the size of the swale is actually dictated by what's practical and how big the equipment is. Big equipment makes big swales, small equipment makes small swales. That's all there is to it. If you're in a position, I'm gonna, again, I'm gonna give you the data, I'm gonna tell you how to find it, but I just, I wanna couch this with some caution. If you're in a position where it's actually critical, that the earthworks you're doing truly take into account the 100-year floodplain. In other words, if you do it wrong, something bad's going to happen. Then this is earthworks that you probably shouldn't be doing on your own without professionals that would already have that number for you with some engineering built into it. Okay? Just want to make sure I catch that. Now, where do I, when I'm for my planning and all and, and getting it for basic design and all, where do I usually get that number? I wish there was a website, and there might be somewhere, I've never found it, where you can just stick in, you know, put your zip code in, 17315 or whatever it is, and, and hit go, and then bam, this would just pick up and show you, like all the other weather stuff, your 100-year rain event is, okay? Well, it's not really that simple, though, because there's so many numbers. There's like, well, what's your maximum six-hour rain event every 100 years? Right? Over a 100-year history, what's your maximum rain event over six hours? 
12 hours. All those numbers are available. The place I go for them is Technical Paper Number 40, put out by the U.S. Department of Commerce. I'll have a link in today's show notes, but it's titled Rainfall Frequency Atlas of the United States for durations from 30 minutes to 24 hours and return periods from 1 to 100 years. And it's just a series of maps is 90% of it. And you can you know go to a page that has the particular data you're looking for, and you'll have your map, and the map will have a series of lines. And those lines will be numbered, uh, you know, 1, 6, 7, 9, whatever. And that line will bisect the United States and, 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 and kind of curve around. And in that path, anywhere in that path, that's the maximum rain event for that frequency, you know, you know, whatever cycle they're telling you that. So you kind of have to know where you're at, and you go there, and you f- kind of trace that, and you might find that neither line really goes over you. Uh, but you're between, let's say, a line that's, say, five and four. Well, you know, you're probably closer to five, maybe four and a half is your maximum rain event for that frequency. So you, and, and then again, but you have to look at this, like that's your precipitation for uh, 10 square miles, 100 years. I'm looking at the one for six hours of rainfall right now. And for me, my six-hour precipitation on 10 square miles Uh, 100-year number is about 5 inches. And that's what I need to design for on a 6-hour, but I probably need to design for 24, really. That's your major flood events. So that's where that number comes from, and that's about overflow. That's about exceeding capacity. You would never design a swale big enough to hold your 100-year flood number. It would be completely impractical. Would never. It's all about the overflow discharge rates, etc., uh, for that number. But that's the best place I have. I, I don't understand why there's not a website like that. Like, there's all kinds of websites where I can go and get all kinds of climate data. I've never seen one listing the 100 year flood number, though. And guys, with that, I think I'm about burned out for the day. Um, maybe I'll take another shot at this list. You guys can keep adding to it if you want to. I feel like I didn't really make a big dent in it, but boy, we did cover a lot of information there. Uh, I'll try to do more shows like this. This is actually kind of fun. It certainly stretches me out of my comfort zone. It makes me think. It makes me go quick on my feet. I don't have a lot of time to be researching stuff doing a show like this. i got to tell you what I know and admit what I don't know and, and move on with it. So hopefully you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow will be a listener feedback show, uh, actually a listener call-in show uh, for Friday. The number for that is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And I will see you on tomorrow, Friday, Friday, Friday. Until then, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.